Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series titled Elijah. We're learning about an ordinary man with extraordinary faith who stood up in a time of darkness. Thanks for joining us today. (laughs) Hey, good morning, church. Hey, my name's Luke. I get to lead our high school ministry. It's good to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible with you, would you go ahead and open the scriptures with me to 1 Kings chapter 19? 1 Kings chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, there's a, a black Bible that should be underneath one of the seats handy near you. You can use that and even take it home with you if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to take that. That's our gift to you. So 1 Kings chapter 19. When uh, when I was a kid, I learned how to swing a golf club uh, with and from and like my dad. My dad was a golfer, his dad was a golfer, and there was this nine-hole little course called the Lynx near my house growing up. And my brother and I would go and we'd play around at golf there. With my dad, I had my own uh, golf bag, you know, with clubs in it, so I was legit as a 10-year-old or whatever I was, right? Uh, And I learned how to play watching him, practicing with him. Uh, Nowadays, I'm a bit out of practice. Uh, The only golfing I really do is of the miniature variety or uh, or maybe a a driving range here and there. But back then, I I can still remember what it was like learning and watching, uh, practicing with my dad how to play golf and just how to swing a club. You can probably picture the scene I was, you know, much smaller then, and I would kind of lean over with the club and the balls right here on the tee. And my dad would come up behind me and kind of wrap his arms around mine, and I'd have my hands on the club, and my dad's hands would be on my hands. And he'd kind of position my fingers and show me where my thumbs go, and he'd knock my foot to the side to, to help me widen my feet and get into the right stance. And, and he would just walk me through this kind of checklist of everything that I needed to do, where every muscle and every joint and and all the the places they needed to be and the role they needed to play to turn uh, this awkward stance, and it felt so strange at first, into a a beautiful, cohesive golf swing. And after watching him do that and him showing me and practicing, I was able to turn all those little movements into something beautiful and good, right? And today, even still, I could walk you through that kind of mental checklist that my dad would take me through. I could talk to you about how I learned about the the width of my feet and their distance from the ball and the angle of my feet and the the weight that you got to place in different parts of your feet as you go through your swing and walk up through from my feet to my knees and my hips, my back, shoulders, elbows, wrists, hands, eyes, head, right? There's There's a job for every part of your body in the game of golf. And so watching him do that, I learned how to pick all that up and turn it into something. Now, to this day, I could never hit the ball as far as my dad. But I did learn over time from being with him how to swing like him. And that's discipleship. Discipleship is kind of a churchy word. It's something we use a lot to talk about spiritual things as we should and as I intend to today. But sometimes I feel like it's helpful for us to get a sense of what discipleship is from the perspective of something outside of the spiritual world because discipleship is always happening. Discipleship is something we can experience every day, even in little moments like me discipling underneath my dad, apprenticing underneath him. That's essentially what discipleship is. Discipleship is fundamentally about imitation and replication. So I was discipling underneath my dad, learning from him how to swing like him. But the same thing happens in our spiritual lives as well, of course. We are disciples, followers, apprentices to Jesus. 
And here's what that means. And this is a helpful definition that we've used here at Cherry Hills before. If you're following in your notes, discipleship is being with Jesus to learn from him how to live like him. Being with Jesus to learn from him how to live like him. That's essentially what it means to be a disciple, to be an apprentice of Jesus. Now, here's why I say that. We're continuing in our series on Elijah this morning. And the story that we're gonna look at is a paradigm. It's a template or a model of discipleship. Probably one of the best examples of a discipling relationship in the whole Bible, in the story that we're gonna look at today. So for context, as we get into it, Israel as a nation is slipping back into idolatry and uh, things are not going well. They're starting to develop a love of empire building and they're beginning to look more and more and more like Canaan like the nations around them, and less and less like God's covenant people as he had called them to be. And so into that moment, God sends the prophet Elijah. Now, Elisha, as you've been hearing throughout this whole series, he's the chief prophet in Israel. You should know there's other prophets at the time in Israel. He's not the only prophet. In fact, there are, we'll see later in the story, companies of prophets or kind of like schools or communities of prophets who are active in different parts of Israel and different cities. But Elijah is the chief prophet at the time who God sends into this mess. And Elijah has a particular role to play in turning the people's hearts back to God. So something we've been saying about Elijah each and every week is that he's an ordinary man with extraordinary faith who stood up in a time of darkness. That's Elijah's role. But today we're gonna talk actually less about Elijah and more about his protege, Elisha. Similar name, two different guys here, all right? Elisha, Elijah's protege, his apprentice, his disciple. Now, we haven't really met Elisha yet, but if you're with us a couple of weeks ago in 1 Kings 19, uh, when Canaan was preaching, we got our first introduction to at least his name, right? our first meeting of who this person Elisha is. And I want us to walk back through this so we can see our first introduction to the person of Elisha. So before we get into that reading here, just real quick, you have to remember Elijah has just had this big win on Mount Carmel, and then things have not gone well in the aftermath of that. He's run scared, angry, sad uh, into this cave. And he's had this radical, dramatic encounter with the Lord. God has revealed himself to him. And Elijah's telling God, hey, I feel all alone. There's nobody with me in this. Like, this is, just, this is bad. And God essentially says to him, hey, you are not alone. I'm going to raise up for you a remnant. This is what he promises to Elijah. So 1 Kings chapter 19, I'll start in verse 15. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel and anoint Elisha son of Shapat from Abel Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So this, this doesn't mean that God is going to literally reduce the population of Israel to exactly 7,000 people. Seven, as you may know, is an important number symbolically. In the Bible, 7,000 conveying the idea that God is going to establish for himself a remnant, a small group of faithful people who have not done the things that the rest of their countrymen have done, who've been faithful to God, even in the hard places, even in the difficult and trying times that they're in. So he's gonna raise up a remnant and he's gonna do it through these three guys. 
And that's hopeful. That's good news for Elijah. That's good news for God's people, right? There's hope in that. And yet it's gonna be difficult because this, this renewal movement, this remnant that God's going to raise up, that renewal is not gonna come about through uh, you know, tent meeting revivals and, and prayer meetings and all that stuff. It's gonna come about through judgment. And so Elisha and these guys have a difficult role to play. What God is essentially going to do is do what a surgeon does when approaching, when approaching a cancerous tumor. In order to heal the body, he's gonna cut away what doesn't truly belong. And that's a painful process, but it's necessary and it's good. That's what God's going to do through Elisha. So he has a difficult calling that uh, he's going to be placed on his shoulders, healing, but painful. So into this moment, we're gonna meet our main guy, Elisha. And I want us to look today at at two moments in Elisha's life. Uh, And one I'm gonna call kind of the, the induction ceremony and the other, the commencement ceremony. You may know those terms from kind of the academic world, all right? But he's about to become an apprentice. And we're just gonna get to see the first moment when he gets, he gets the mantle placed on him and we're gonna get to see the ending of this moment at the end of Elijah's life. So he's gonna become an apprentice. For you Star Wars people, if Elijah is Qui-Gon Jinn, Elisha is gonna be Obi-Wan Kenobi. If you speak Star Wars, that will make sense to you, okay? <laughs> All right, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I'll come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. And then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. So the first thing that Elijah does after this moment with God is he goes and he finds Elisha. He goes and he finds Elisha and he does something that's a little bit odd, something that doesn't really fit our cultural understanding of what's going on in this moment. He throws his cloak around him. And I want us to see that it's not just that it's a chilly day and he notices he's cold. The Bible wastes no details with stuff like that. He does this in a very particular intentional, for a very particular intentional reason. There is significance to this moment. If you had a KJV Bible in your lap instead of an NIV or whatever you have with you, you'd notice that instead of the word cloak, there's the word mantle. And a mantle is kind of an older English word for a cloak or just that outer, that outer garment, that outer covering. And throughout history, the word mantle became used metaphorically or symbolically as a kind of as a way of appointing someone to an office or appointing a successor. So for instance, in a royal or a civil authority ceremony, you would have somebody who has authority, who has power, and they would take a mantle, a cloak, and they would place it on the shoulders of somebody that they were going to appoint as their successor or appoint to an office of civil or royal authority, right? So this is what Elijah is doing to Elisha right? He is placing the mantle on him, okay? If you're following your notes, Elijah is passing the mantle. He's placing the weight of his calling, his responsibilities, his authority, all on the shoulders of this young man, Elisha. It's kind of like he's, he's you know, taking a jersey and he's tossing it to, it, to, to Elisha. And he's saying, hey, get in the game, suit up, Right? And this seems like maybe a cool moment. I mean, you just got chosen by, you know, chief prophet in Israel. But you got to remember, Elijah does not have many fans 
This is like getting drafted by the worst team in the league. I mean, he's, it's not something to really be excited about. Elisha is probably from a wealthy land-owning family. He, he's got 12, you know, pair of oxen out there. I mean, he's feeding the people, right? So, so he's got something to risk, something to sacrifice, something to lose. And just to go and to follow this guy who is still kind of public enemy number one in Israel. So this is a, this is a difficult thing. He's being invited into an incredible sacrifice. People are not just flocking to support team Elijah. And yet Elisha is earnest, at least at first, right? He runs after his new master, the guy who just called him and in essence said, follow me. And yet there's this moment of sudden realization. When Elisha says, wait, let me go back real quick. Say, say goodbye, kiss goodbye to my mother and, and my father. I got some stuff to take care of back home. And to us, we think, well, that's just a good son. He's being courteous. You know, you gotta look after mom and dad. But again, no details wasted. That's not exactly what the text is implying here. What's implied in the text is that Elisha is considering, he's having this moment where he's, he's reflecting back on what's behind him, as opposed to just running forward, sticking with Elijah. He has this moment of, ooh, wait, I got some other stuff I gotta take care of. I got some responsibilities back here. I know you just placed you know, your mantle and I'm supposed to be with you, and, but, but like I got some stuff to take care of back home. Can I just go and do that? Right? So it's this moment, he's not insincere when he says he's gonna come back. He's not trying to deceive Elijah and say, well, I'm gonna go back and then never see him again. But it is this moment where he, he reflects on the things that are being left behind. Jesus would later echo this moment in his own teaching on discipleship. There's one occasion where some people are trying to enlist themselves in Jesus's service. And one of them says to Jesus in Luke chapter nine, verse 61 and 62, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Sound familiar? And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand at the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is Jesus's way of saying, um, I'm only accepting followers with greater devotion than Elisha. And I don't know about you, but I think it would be hard to place myself in that category of people. There's a high, high standard, a high bar of commitment that's required to be a disciple of Jesus. And so Elisha's moment of looking backward rather than forward, thankfully it's very, very short-lived. He's a quick learner, a sincerely devoted student. And so he does go back, but he doesn't just go back and linger. He goes back and he doesn't just say goodbye to his old life. He goes scorched earth on his old life. I mean, he's, he's literally about to wreck any hope, any possibility. He's gonna burn that bridge and make sure that now, from now on, he is fully devoted to his master, his teacher, Elijah. He goes back, he kills all the oxen, he burns all the farming equipment and then throws himself a send-off party. He says, if I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go big. I'm out of here, right? Now I'm fully devoted. I am with Elijah. He's gonna be my master. I'm gonna be his apprentice, his student. And so this is, I think, his first lesson on his first day of the new job. If you're following your notes, stay close to your master. Do not look away for a second. Stay close to your master. And this lesson that he has to learn on day one will follow him for the rest of his apprenticeship. And this lesson is at the heart of what all discipleship is about. And you and I, as followers of Jesus, disciples and apprentices of Jesus, would do well to learn this same lesson. Stay close to your master. Don't look away for a second. So that's day one. 
of Elisha's apprenticeship to Elijah. Now, the very next time that we get to see Elisha in action in the Bible is at the very end of Elijah's ministry, the very end of his calling on the earth. And so we don't know exactly how many years pass between this. I can tell you that it's at least six years, almost certainly more than that, before we see Elisha again in this moment that we're about to look at at the end of Elijah's ministry. So if you will, turn over in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings chapter 2, and we'll move on to this next moment, away from the induction day and on to commencement day. And this is where, you know, if we were writing the Bible, we'd include like a training montage this is where we didn't put the, you know, the Karate Kid, Rocky Balboa, and see Elisha grow up and be formed and trained. We don't get to see all that here. We just get to see the beginning and we get to see the end, induction and commencement day. But there's roughly six years or more between this. So he's had a lot of training. He's, he's gotten to see and observe and practice and train under Elisha for years and years by the time we get to this moment in 2 Kings chapter two. I'll start reading for us in verse one. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, spoiler alert, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. He's learned his lesson, right? So they went down to Bethel. And the company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, so be quiet. And then Elijah said to him, stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. And the company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, so be quiet. And then Elijah said to him, stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan, the river. And he replied, you should know this by now, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. And so the two of them walked on. 50 men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Now, one of the things that we should notice here is that Elijah is taking Elisha back through time. Not literally, no DeLoreans or flux capacitors present here, but he is retracing the steps of Israel as Joshua led them through the land during the conquest of Canaan. I wanna show you something on screen here so you can just see the kind of route that they take. Um, I know you can't see the city names and that's okay, but you can just tell they're moving uh, from uh, uh, west to east towards the Jordan River. So when Israel invades the land of Canaan with Joshua at the helm, they invade from the Jordan and they go in and kind of reverse this route. And so Elijah is walking Elisha back through, uh, back through this route, reversing the way that they came in. And now they're at the place uh, opposite the Jordan River. They've just crossed over the Jordan River and they're at the place where Moses passed his mantle onto Joshua. And so this is being done for a particular reason, right? There's probably some practical stuff going on, right? There are different communities of the prophets that we, as we've just seen who are out some of these different towns and maybe Elisha uh, wants to visit some of these communities of prophets before he departs. But there's something more substantial than that. Again, no details wasted. He, he's trying to set 
Elisha up to see the calling on his life, the role that he's going to play when Elijah leaves him. He's trying to create a parallel. Elijah is gonna be like Moses and Elisha is going to be like Joshua, right? So if you're following your notes, Elisha has a Joshua-like calling. Elisha is going to be the sword of the Lord and build a faithful remnant to push back the tide of idolatry and injustice in the land. Now, Elijah is not saying all that, but he is reminding Elisha of his calling. It's kind of like the commencement ceremony at college. I can remember mine. The, the dean of the students gets up there and they give a speech and they talk about the purpose of your education and how you're being sent out into the world. Once you've been equipped, now that you've been trained, you're gonna go out into the world and, and, and live on mission and make a difference and use your skills, right? This is that moment for Elijah and Elisha as they walk and talk together. So continuing 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 9. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. And yet, if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. What's lesson one? Stay close to your master, right? Don't look away for a second. Here we are again. Verse 11, as they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and he tore it in two. In the Bible, that's a sign of lament, this time with the loss of his master. But it's okay, he's about to get some new clothes to put on. Verse 13, Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak, his mantle that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And he took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Here's this question. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elisha? He asked. You just gotta love this question because this question is the disciples' question. It's the question at the heart of the whole story. Where now is the Lord? You ever ask this question? You ever wonder like, hey, where is God at? You ever felt distant or close to God? This is the question we're always asking, right? Where's God? Is he here? Am I with him? Is he in this? Is he doing something? Is he present? Is he speaking? Is he active? And if it's true, if, if the answer is yes, God is here, I am with him, he is in this, then nothing else matters to the disciple. The severity or the uncertainty of your calling, the work that God has set before you, the commission that you've been given as a disciple, none of that can phase you if the Lord is truly with you. If the answer to that question is yes, then nothing else matters. If the Lord is here, I'm in the right place. If the Lord is in this work, I'm doing the right thing. Sometimes we wander through life with no compass, right? We're looking, hey, where's meaning? Where's purpose? Where's identity? Where can that stuff be found? And the question that as disciples of Jesus, we should be asking to orient ourselves as we navigate this difficult life is this question, where now is the Lord? And there's two different ways of phrasing that that I've put in your notes that I think are helpful uh, phrases on this question, essentially saying the same sort of thing. First, what is the Lord saying and what am I going to do about it? And secondly, where is the Lord working and how can I join him? 
I teach my students to ask these kind of questions all the time. We're always trying to listen and respond to the Spirit, right? Where is the Lord working and how can I join him? What's he saying? What am I going to do about it? These are the disciples' questions. Where now is the Lord? Continuing in verse 14, when he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. And the company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, listen to this answer from the question, the spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. So after this, the company of the prophets, they go and they look for Elijah. And as Elisha knows and tells them, he's nowhere to be found. But they go and they look and they do their search anyway, and they come up empty-handed. They can't find him. And there's a biblical and a theological puzzle that's really interesting, and I spent some time this past week looking into it. And I would just say, if you're interested in that, like, what happens to Elijah? You can wrestle with that on your own. It's some good questions to ask. But for our purposes here, the main thing we need to understand is the significance of the moment for our own discipleship. Like theological puzzles, love it. It's interesting, I'm all about it. But what does this have to do with my own discipleship to Jesus? And here's what I want us to see. In your notes, power comes through presence. Power comes through presence. And by power, I just mean the capacity, the ability to do what you were called to do, what you were commissioned to do, sent and meant to do. That's what power is in the spiritual life. And Elisha seeks a double portion of Elijah's spirit. That means he wants the God who sees, uh, who's with Elijah, empowering him, speaking through him to be present in his own life so that he can then go and do the same sorts of things and then some that Elijah, his master, was doing. He's like, hey, I know I'm gonna want seconds here, all right? Give me that double portion. He's like, I know I'm gonna want a second plate because I wanna be just like you and I wanna do the things that you've done. And in order to do that, I need the same spirit of God who was with you and empowered you to go with me and empower me. And so that's why he asked for the double portion of the spirit because power comes through presence. The spirit of the Lord needs to be with him as it was with Elijah. He wants God to empower him for the commissioning that he has been given. And that is the goal of every disciple, to be with the spirit right? To listen to the Spirit, to obey the Spirit, so that we can walk in the calling that our Lord Jesus has given to us as he commissioned us at his end and his ascension. And that's why this isn't just a quirk in the story, right? Him, him ascending and giving the Spirit, right? And asking for a portion so we can, that's not just like a weird thing in this story. That is paradigmatic. That's a template for what all of discipleship is like. Just as Elijah is a new Moses, He's empowering a new Joshua by imparting his spirit to him. So Jesus is like Elijah, giving his spirit to his church, his followers, so that we can walk in our calling as well. We are in that sense, Elisha. Before his own ascension to heaven, Jesus commissioned his disciples, promising to be with them through his spirit, saying, I'm going to send you what my father has promised but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. That's Luke 24. He says, hey, I'm gonna give you my spirit. You better wait on it, wait for it. Because when my spirit comes, he will guide you into truth and righteousness and justice. In John 14, 12, Jesus told his disciples, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing and even greater things will he do than these because I'm going to the Father. When I hear that verse, like it's hard for me to even believe. Greater things than Jesus, what? But Jesus is gonna give us his spirit so that we can be like him 
if we're with him. So we have to ask ourselves the question. This is what I want you to wonder. Who is the successor to the ministry of Jesus? You are. And I am. And all his followers are. Because Jesus has given each of us his spirit so that we can be with him and learn from him how to live like him. That's what it means for us to be a disciple. Write this in your notes. I am the successor to the ministry of Jesus. And maybe as we write that, we just need to take a moment and like <laughs> gasp or something. Because if we really understood what that meant, we would be a bit more in awe day to day in our lives than we are. I am the successor to the ministry of Jesus. The same spirit of God, Paul says, who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. You are the body of Christ. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you? Generation after generation, the mantle has been passed until in this generation, it has come to rest on you and on me. So what does that mean for our lives? I wanna give you two things. The first thing it means is be discipled. Be discipled. Go back to lesson number one, stay close to Jesus. He's your master, he's your teacher. He wants to show you what it looks like to do life with him so you can learn to live like he lived in your own context, in your own personality, in your own skin, to live the way of Jesus in your own life. So stay close to him. That is the first and foremost priority of the Christian life, not to wander and do things on our own, but to stay close to Jesus. Don't look away for a second, be discipled. And that leads into the second thing. If we're gonna be discipled, we better learn how to make disciples because making disciples is the natural end of discipleship. It's all about replication, imitation, multiplication. So I wanna ask you, who are you making a disciple with right now? Who's somebody that you're discipling? Who are you investing in? Who are you mentoring? Who are you pouring your life into? Look, everything that Jesus has passed on to us is meant to be received. And everything that we've received from Jesus is meant to be passed on to somebody else. We're just baton carriers in the relay, right? We have that role to play. Jesus has given us himself, his spirit, and he wants us to go therefore and make disciples because he's gone to the father, but he's going to be with us through his spirit. So be discipled and make disciples. And the question to guide us in that pursuit for all of our lives is the same question that Elisha asks. Where now is the Lord? Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for your church. Mostly I thank you that we gather here in your presence where two or three are gathered, here you are. Lord, help us to be in awe this morning that we're not ministering alone, we're not ministering on our own. We're not going through life in our own capacity and ability, but that you are always with us. Help us to stay close to you, to recognize our need for you, our dependence on you. And help us to learn day by day and in this moment how to live like you because of the time spent in your presence. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of your presence. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church or to get connected, please visit cherryhillsfamily.org or find us on Facebook. Thanks for joining us.